Many of you know that a few months ago, back in May, my, my 13-year-old son, Eli, and I went on a hike together. We went to the Wachita Mountains in Arkansas, and we did a 26.8-mile hike around Eagle Rock Loop. Um, it was a two-and-a-half-day trip. We'd spent two nights on the side of the mountain carrying backpacks, and overall, it was a great trip, but it quickly um, became uh, noticeable that this was going to be much more of a challenge than either one of us thought, like right out of the gate. I mean, we put those backpacks on and you're going, wow, these are heavy, <laughs> right? And then we started off on the hardest side of the loop where we had to do six, we had to climb six different mountain peaks during those first eight or nine miles on that first day. And so we've got these heavy backpacks on and um, we're, we're climbing up these steep trails and we're going this is what we signed up for for two and a half days right as a matter of fact this was a picture of eli like 10 minutes after we had gotten in um i was doing the exact same thing right i mean he was looking around at me going this dad is what you signed up for us to do for two and a half days right i mean we were dragging we were complaining those backpacks were heavy they were rubbing on our shoulders and they we couldn't get comfortable i mean it just felt like such a burden keep that image in your mind when you're thinking about what paul has just written in romans chapter 7 if you were here last week, you know that Paul was writing about the struggle with living out the law and its inability to produce holiness. He was trying to carry the backpack of law, if you will, up the mountainside and trying to achieve and perform and live up to the standard that God had set before him of holiness. And Paul kept going, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, right? He would fall on his face the entire time. Now, Eli and I, after getting kind of okay into our rhythm a little bit, finally did make it to through all of those mountain peaks and up to the highest mountain peak. And there's a little trail off to one of the sides. And you'll see in this next picture that we had made it to the very highest peak on the mountain. The picture doesn't really do it justice. I mean, it was beautiful. We were, we were high. I mean, like we saw an eagle um, out there. And the, the eagle, it might even be it in the far right corner over there. He's like lower than we are okay like i mean we were really high up there but it was a, a magnificent view we just felt so free and so alive in this moment and so if the first picture that you saw of us was paul writing chapter seven and the struggle that he experienced with the law chapter eight he's writing from this place he's at the top of the mountain and he's experiencing Christ in him and through him. This is an incredible chapter that we're about to dive into. Here's what Bible scholar Robert Mount says about it. With chapter 8, we arrive at what may be called the inspirational highlight of Romans. Here, the apostle is swept along in a wave of spiritual exaltation that begins with God's provision of the Spirit for victory over the old nature, breaks through the sufferings that mark our present existence, and crests with a doxology of praise to the unfathomable love of God revealed in 
Christ Jesus. Nowhere in the annals of sacred literature do we find anything to match the power and beauty of this remarkable paean of praise. We are not dealing with mere theology, Mount says. As Paul wrote, his pen gave evidence that he was caught up in an experience of profound worship and spiritual adoration. This is Romans chapter 8. Then it comes off of Paul sharing this struggle, this struggle of the, the backpack of law, the struggle, the, the burden, the, the failure that he experienced, where he would get up the mountain and then fall back down the mountain and just feel the condemnation, right? You're guilty. You can't do it. And he cries out at the end of chapter 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers it in verse 25 and says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's Jesus. It, Jesus, he was now able to write from the mountaintop, not because he had achieved his goal of climbing up the mountain, but because Jesus came down from the mountain and took the backpack off for him and carried it himself along with Paul on top of his shoulders all the way up the mountain to bring him there and set him there so that he was now alive and free and could write of all of the benefits of being in Christ and having the spirit that we now have. It's incredible. It's magnificent. It's why he could say in the very first verse of chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Y'all must not have heard what I said, right? These guys did over here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. Zilch, right? That means that there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus for the gossip that you spread about your best friend, for the lies that you've told your entire life for you letting your parents down over and over and over again. There is no condemnation for that pornography that you have looked at, for the spouse that you may have cheated on, for the divorce that you may have walked through. There is no condemnation for that abortion that may be in your past or for anything else that you have ever done. There is no condemnation no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus is the key phrase there it means to be in union with Christ through his spirit We'll talk more about that along the way. That's what makes it all possible, and he unpacks how this can be true, how there can be no condemnation for those in Christ in the next few verses. Verse 2, he says, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, underline that phrase, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The reason that we don't experience any condemnation if we're in Christ Jesus is because he has met the requirement of the law for us. And now being in him, it's like we've met it ourselves because we're in this union with Christ who has met it for us. In other words, you are no longer having to prove yourself before God. You are no longer having to measure up. You are no longer having to carry the backpack on your shoulders trying to make it up the mountain so that God will be more proud of you. You are not having to try to close the gap between God up here and you down here and your behavior proving how much closer and better you're getting so that God will love you more and look more favorably upon you. You are on the mountaintop because of what Jesus has done by merit and been offered to you by grace. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul is describing two different kinds of people, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And he's saying those who are unsaved are those who only have your flesh. You, you don't have the Spirit of God living in you. You only have your flesh. You only have your own strength. You only have your own power to try to justify yourself before God. And, and he's saying you can't do it, just like he's been saying all throughout Romans, because your best before God, while it may be better in your mind than other people, because we can do that really well and justify ourselves comparing to other people, in our own minds a lot is just filthy rags before a holy and a perfect God you cannot submit to his law nor can you do so you cannot please God but Paul says this is not who you are verse 9 you however are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the spirit if indeed the spirit of God lives in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to Christ it can't get any clearer than that if you're wondering how this whole thing works and if you can be good enough to justify yourself before God, he says either you have the Spirit living in you or you don't. You're either unsaved because the Spirit doesn't live in you or you're saved because the Spirit lives in you. And how do you get the Spirit? By His grace, it's a gift that gets deposited in you that you receive from faith. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, when you believed... When you put your faith and trust in him, you were marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing your future inheritance. It gets deposited in you through faith, right? This is why we would belong to Christ, because the Spirit of God lives in us. He's writing to Christians. So he says, you're not in the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the Spirit. You belong to Christ, and here are the benefits of belonging to Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. 
The body may be wasting away and you're experiencing the decay. You experience the, the feelings associated with suffering in this world and all kinds of things that, that we walk in and out of, situations and circumstances. But the Spirit gives, right, gives life. You don't earn it by how you're behaving. You're given life because Jesus is life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, right? He's the life. You've been given the life in him because he's now made you righteous. And so in other words, you no longer operate from a place of lack in your life. You may feel because your body is decaying and you still experience some of that in that, that you feel like you're operating from a place of lack, but Paul will say later on in Romans 12 to renew your tr mind to the truth, and the truth is you are not operating from a place of lack. You operate from a place of fullness all the time if you're in Christ. Fullness. And it gets even better because that body that you feel all those things in, he's going to take care of that too. Verse 11, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Can I get an amen on that one? I mean, I wake up out of bed sometimes and just go, man, I, I hurt because I slept. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. Why are you limp? I don't know. I just slept and I hurt, right? It just stinks getting old, but they'll be taken, these things will be taken care of. In other words, we're going to get the new body on the outside that's going to match up to the new creation and new life that we already have on the inside. You have it. It's in there. Not experiencing it in your, I mean, you kind of, I'm not saying you don't experience the life of Christ in you and through you in your body as he expresses himself through you, but we all know our bodies are decaying because of sin and we're going to get new bodies and what a glorious day that is going to be verse 12 therefore because all these things are true about you that i'm saying in the spirit and you being in the realm of the spirit brothers and sisters family we have an obligation but it is not to the flesh to live according to it for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if the, by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live so because you're different now because you're united to Christ and made into this new creation in him, you don't have any obligation to the flesh anymore. You, you did. Before the spirit was in you, you had full obligation to your flesh. It was all that you had. So when you had a desire or you felt empty on the inside, you had to use your flesh to try to feel the emptiness that you felt on the inside. You were obligated to do that because that's all you had. But now that you're over here and you are operating from a place of fullness, you don't have any obligation to the flesh because you've been separated from it. Paul's been saying that. Now you've been set free from the power of sin. You're no longer a slave to it. You've been set free from the law and having to try to prove yourself over and over and over again. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, now, now don't misunderstand that and think that when Paul's saying, okay, well, then that means if I'm, if I'm following the Spirit then I'm experiencing the Spirit, then God sees me as His child. But if I'm, I'm not being led by the Spirit, I'm not, I'm not following in the Spirit's ways, then He doesn't see me as His child. He's not describing action here. He's, he's talking about orientation. This is who you are. Those who are led by the Spirit are those who are in the realm of the Spirit. 
those who are already united to him. You are his kid because Jesus is his son and you are united to Jesus, adopted into the family, which he gets into next. Verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Yes. When I um, was reading those verses again this week, I was reminded of a video testimony from a guy named uh, Josh Ship that I saw several years ago on social media. You may know his name. He's kind of a national speaker and travels around in educational circles, written a few books and even done a few TV shows, that kind of thing. But in his story of growing up, he tells how he was, he was moved into the foster care system from day one. I mean, from the moment that he was born, he entered into the foster care system. And he went in and out of, I don't know how many different foster homes throughout his life. And he talks about being abused by other foster kids and abused by foster parents and, and told over and over again that he would never amount to anything. As a matter of fact, as he grew up and experienced all of this rejection and all of this bullying and violence and, and just uh, sin that was in this world that he was growing up in, he said, I actually started to try to reject other people before they would reject me. And so he said, I would do my best to get kicked out of whatever foster home I went into as quickly as I possibly could so I could leave on my own terms. And, and he was pretty successful at doing it most of the time. I mean, he felt such fear of rejection, fear of being unlovable, fear of if I put myself out there and try to get them to love me, and they still let me go anyway, it just proves that I'm a failure. So why would I even want to try if that could actually happen to me? I'm going to go out on my own terms. And he got kicked in and, or got kicked out of just about every home that he went to until he became a teenager. And he went, in, went into a different home where, with a foster dad whose name was Rodney. And three years go by, and he's still living in the same home. And this is not for lack of not trying to get kicked out. I mean, he had uh, done everything that he had used to do to other foster families to get kicked out, called them names and made fun of them and disobeyed their rules, set things on fire in the house and outside of the house. And, and they wouldn't get rid of him. And so one day, three years later, he's going, I've got to up my game, right? Like, I've got to get kicked out of here on my own terms. And so he walks down to the bank, drives down to the bank um, without a driver's license, and um, opens up a checking account somehow and begins to write $10,000 worth of checks with money that he didn't have in the bank. And then he drives off, and he's going 90 miles an hour down the highway with no driver's license. He gets pulled over, gets arrested, and... He's thinking, this is it. I've finally done what I would have to do to get kicked out. Foster dad shows up the next morning, bails him out of jail and says, son, we need to talk. <laughs> and, and Josh is thinking, this is it. I finally did it. I did enough to finally get kicked out. And he said, son, you can keep trying to get kicked out of our house if you want to, but I'm just here to tell you that it's not gonna work. He said, when are you gonna get it through your thick head that we don't see you as a problem? We don't see you as a problem. We see you as one who has value. 
We see you as an opportunity. We see you because you're created in the image of God and you have value in him. We're not defining you by where you've been, what's been done to you, and what you've been doing at all of these other homes or even in our home. We're defining you by who God says that you are. And just as that was the biggest turning point of my life. He said, no longer do I have to fear rejection. No longer did I have to fear being unlovable. No longer did I have to fear putting myself out there to try to get someone to like me and doing something to disappoint them and then them just get rid of me. I knew I was in. I knew they weren't going to kick me out. So all of a sudden, the bondage that I felt that I was in, I was free from. And I was just able to go explore who it was that God created me to be. It made me think of how, what he's saying here, the spirit you receive does not make you slave so that you will live in fear. It's, it's a fearful thing to feel like you're always having to measure up in this world. We're always having to prove ourselves. We're always having to justify ourselves. We're always worried and anxious about whether we're here, whether we're there, and what's going on, and how does God feel about me, and how do these people feel about me, and all of those things. And the, and, and the gospel is you don't have to measure up. I've sent Jesus to measure up for you so that I can give you all of this stuff in Christ, adopt you into my family so that now you don't have to fear any longer measuring up and now you're just free to go live who I created you to be. This is the gospel. This is the difference between us going, yeah, Josh, you go make something out of yourself and you prove all of them wrong, buddy, by the hard work and the discipline and you climb up and you prove all of them that you're wrong. And we celebrate that in America when people overcome all of those things and they grow up and they achieve and everybody's going, yeah, look at the success story. And they're still filled with such emptiness and despair inside because the thinking over and over again is, are you proud of me yet, Dad? Are you proud of me yet, Dad? Are you proud of me yet, Dad? And the gospel is completely different here not because of anything that you've done i'm going to give you all of this in christ and this is my son and who i am well pleased right what god speaks over jesus after his baptism before he ever even does anything in ministry this is what he thinks of you he doesn't operate from a spirit of condemnation if you're hearing that voice of constantly pointing out your sin God's constantly nagging me about not being enough, constantly pointing out all the things that I'm doing wrong. That is not the voice of God. That is not your heavenly dad. That is Satan who is the one who condemns. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, right? Verse 17, now if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also experience his glory. Isn't that absolutely stunning? You're not just going to receive an inheritance one day. He says that you are co-heirs. Co-heirs with Jesus. Whatever is Jesus's is yours. To be in the spirit and united to Jesus and adopted into his family, the adoption doesn't mean second-rate status. <laughs> Full rights as a firstborn son. What is Jesus's is yours. 
I must have lost some of you. I don't know, somewhere along the way. That, I find that to be good news. Uh, Paul knows that, that that doesn't discount that there will be suffering in this world, though, right? I mean, he, he co-heirs all of the stuff that you have in Christ, uh, but he doesn't discount the suffering. I mean, if Jesus himself left the glory and the riches of heaven and came here and was treated the way that he was treated, experienced suffering, you and I shouldn't expect that because we're in Christ, we wouldn't suffer. But he has something to say about that suffering. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I, I mentioned earlier how we went on the weekend hiking trip two and a half days in the arkansas uh, wachita mountains and again after we got our rhythm on the first day and figured out what we were doing a little bit better it really did end up being a, a great experience overall i mean the scenery was incredible we had a great time um, uh, talking about certain things and and we, the most brilliant and, and best camping spots on the side of the mountain i mean it was just great but after we woke up on the third morning, I unzipped the tent and I took two steps, one on the left foot and one on the right foot, and I immediately winced in pain, almost brought tears to my eyes, and fell to the ground because I realized that I had formed two blisters on each feet that were probably the size of half dollars and were bubbled up and huge, and they were extremely painful. And I still had six miles to go thinking there's no way how am i going to make it right but what choice do you have right i got six miles to get to the finish line right i mean we're inside of the mountain nobody's there so we pack everything up and i strap everything back on eli does the same thing and we take off and let me tell you every single step i took for those six miles hurt all thirteen thousand of them right every step was painful right but i knew that with every step that I took and felt that pain, I knew that I was one step closer to glory. One step closer to glory. And when I finally arrived at the finish line, those present sufferings that I was experiencing were not comparable to the glory of being at the finish line in that moment. And here's the other thing. Even though each one of those steps hurt, even though I was experiencing some suffering along the way, I could look up every now and then and I could see my son who I was getting to walk alongside on this journey. Somebody that I love and care for deeply. 
that I know loves and cares about me. And I got to experience that suffering with him. And so there were moments where it still felt good knowing what was eventually coming, but even now in the moment, because of what I was experiencing with him. When we walk through suffering, we don't do it alone. Jesus is with us. His life is still deposited in us, and we still get to experience him and his goodness along the way, which is what he's gonna say in just a few verses. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I mean, Paul just keeps going with the benefit or after benefit after benefit that you and I have of being in this union with Christ while we wait for glory. The Spirit is at work. He's interceding on our behalf, uh, interceding for us when we don't know what to pray, prompting us, guiding us in accordance with God's will. And because he's involved in all of that and in the suffering like we just talked about, he can say what he does in verse 28. And we know that in all things, good or bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been a called or called according to his purpose. The situation, the circumstance may not always be good. And I'm not saying that God enjoys us walking through suffering, right? He doesn't like that we suffer due to the sin that's in this world, but he's a big enough God that he can work even in the suffering to produce good for us in those times. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, listen, some of you heard us read those verses just now, and your mind went to some place associated with John Calvin and all of these isms that we start to get into. And okay, does that mean that God picks some people and he doesn't pick other people to be saved. And I think when we start to get into all of these kind of discussions, while, you know, they may be worth having on some level, we miss the point of what Paul is really trying to say. Who, who by the way, throughout all of Scripture, God says he's for all people. John three sixteen. God uh, for so loved the world that he gave his son. In Titus, he says, the grace of God that appears to all people and offered to all people has appeared to um, um, all of them. So he mentions all of these things, but I think what, we, what, what Paul's trying to say is an encouragement to us. He's been writing about the suffering. He's been writing about how we'll experience that, and we have future glory one day, how he can work even in and through it. And when you know and you see that the work of salvation is ultimately up to God, right? Which is what I think he's trying to say. I mean, if he's, if he's had a plan, right? If he had a plan to be able to send Jesus that you can see all the way back from Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world, right? That he had a plan to solve the problems of the world and your biggest problem in your life and that he would take care of it himself because you couldn't get up the mountain with the backpack on and he would justify you and he would ultimately be the one to glorify you, then this should be a total encouragement to you. Because if you belong to Christ, he's going to 
move you through all of this and conform you to the image of his son. And so because all of this is true, this is what leads him to say what he does in verses 31 through 39. He says, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, how good is the good news? Because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the grace offered to us, we are brought into this spiritual union that nothing in this world can separate us from. If you are in Christ, you are always in his love. If you are in Christ, you are always in his grace. If you are in Christ, you are always justified before God. If you are in Christ, you are always in his grip. If you are in Christ, there is no stopping your future glorification one day. So what is today's application? If you're in Christ, smile. Relax. Take a deep breath. God's got this. He's got you. Rest in his love. Experiencing him as your dad along the way. He's not a hard, demanding father. He's easy to love. And if you've never taken a step and received Jesus into your life, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, this grace and all that we've been talking about that you receive in Christ is available to you. Won't you receive him today? Let's pray.